Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to be talking about Jeff Koons. I have to admit, I'm a little bit terrified to talk about Jeff Koons today. Um, He is a very controversial artist. The advantage of talking about Jeff Koons is that... Unlike some of the other topics that we've covered, uh, there's a good chance that some of you have seen works by Jeff Koons yourselves. If you're not familiar, as always, you can go to our website, arthistory.today, and we're going to post up three images that we're going to be focusing on um, and maybe some others as well. The reason that we want to talk about Jeff Koons right now as opposed to any other time is because his major retrospective at the Whitney Museum of American Art here in New York City is closing on October 19th. And to celebrate uh, the the closing of the show, they're having a 36-hour marathon where the museum's going to be open continuously, including the restaurants. And apparently there's also a rumor that Jeff Koons himself might make an appearance. Uh, As I mentioned, he's a very controversial figure. He is something of a litmus test in the art world. Either you love him or you hate him, like I said. And the, and the vogue basically is to hate him. It's very fashionable in the art world uh, to, to really not like his work, n- not like his personality, um, not like his politics. It's commonly thought that he makes art for what we would now call the 1%, art that is crass, that is uh, blatantly commercial, that is shallow in terms of um, not having any sort of profound ideas, but just looking pretty, looking like something that a collector would want, you know, next to their chateau. Um, And also being very sexy. And not that being sexy is in and of itself a problem, but that there's really nothing there, that the sex is just selling itself, selling the art. When I was going through the show, I was thinking of this reference from uh, the show Seinfeld, where Jerry and Elaine are talking about Newman. Elaine says, perhaps there's more to Newman than meets the eye. And then Jerry says, no, there's less. And I was kind of thinking that (laughs) with respect to Jeff Koons, perhaps there's more to Jeff Koons than meets the eye. No, there's less. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because the critical response to this retrospective um, seems to basically be that you do end up loving Jeff Koons despite yourself, that after sort of decades of making him um, sort of a whipping boy, that this retrospective really proves to you that there is more there than meets the eye. Why is that? Uh, And the critic for The New Yorker wrote that when you encounter the works themselves, when you put aside all of the hype and all of the, you know, record-breaking auction prices and... His cult of personality. His cult of personality. and, And when you put aside all of that and just look at the work... Um, he he has, quote, a formidable aesthetic intelligence. And so that's really the idea that I want to deal with today in talking about Jeff Koons, to put aside all of the other drama, basically, and just look very closely at three sculptures and see how it might be the case that Koons does have a formidable aesthetic intelligence. The works we're going to be looking at, I do want to point out, are all going to be sculptures. And Koons has worked in other materials, especially in the 90s. Uh, a lot of paintings came out. But the general critical consensus is that those were a a mistake, a a misstep for Koons, um, that they're really just not good. There's nothing redeemable about them. And the sculptures, on the other hand, 
are works that, even if you hate them, do pose some interesting questions that need to be addressed. So I, I picked three sculptures to talk about that are from... Uh, that, that basically span Jeff Koons's entire career. And they're three very different sculptures, but I think we'll see that there are some recurring interests that Koons continues to explore in his art, even as we'll also see how his art has developed over, over different stages. Just to give you a little bit of background about Koons, um, he was born in York, Pennsylvania in 1955. Um, so he's now in his late 50s, he's 59. Um, and he's kind of created this huge mythology around his biography that's then been perpetuated by various critics who have discussed him. So um, he was raised by a father who worked with furniture. Um, he went to visit Dali in New York City when he was young. Um, after he went to college, he sold memberships at MoMA. Um, he later went on to become a commodities broker on Wall Street and that um, his his presence in, in the financial world, especially, I, I think, in that uh, in the 80s, uh, with respect to the 80s and that kind of, you know, greed is good era uh, is significant. Um, later, he went on to marry an Italian porn star and that uh, and politician and politician. Yeah. Hungarian, Italian porn star and politician. Right. Um, and that marriage kind of formed the genesis of a number of those paintings, the Made in Heaven um, uh, film and paintings from the 90s. More recently, he's collaborated with Lady Gaga on Art Pop. Um, and he recently did a spread with a photographer, Annie Leibovitz, uh, for Vanity Fair that showed him lifting weights in the nude. Um, so we'll see elements of all of those aspects of his biography coming to play in these different um, works that Tina's highlighting. And that's one of the reasons why it does make more sense with somebody like Coons than um, some other contemporary artists to actually talk about the biography because the biography is present. I think Sarah and I both come from a per particular philosophy of looking at art that says that, you know, you don't always have to tie everything you see in the work back to a fact from the artist's biography and that frequently an artist's biography won't help you understand what the work is actually trying to say to you. But with somebody like Kuhn's where the biographical references are sort of increasingly explicit, the life of the man does become important. And he's so self-aggrandizing and self-mythologizing. So right. it, it, it seems like his personality is yet another one of his works, yeah. basically. Right. All right. So um, Kuhn's really emerged in the 1980s and is still associated, as Sarah pointed out, with the greed is good um, excesses of that decade. The first series of work he did uh, is called The New, uh, a series um, that was uh, first presented in the storefront windows of the New Museum of Contemporary Art here in New York City in its um, location on 14th Street at the time, 1980. Shows about vacuum cleaners, or is made of vacuum cleaners that are presented in plexiglass um, cases with fluorescent lights under them. Uh, in order to understand this work, we need to go back to the idea of the ready-made, a term that was coined by Marcel Duchamp, an early uh, avant-garde artist of the 20th century, who in 1917 tried to exhibit a men's urinal turned upside down as a work of art and called it Fountain. And um, if you listen to our recent Ai Weiwei episode, we talked about ready-mades in right, that context right. as well. So um, the basic idea of the ready-made is to take a, an object that's already made in the world and put it into an institutional space that is associated with the presentation of art. So basically taking an everyday object out of context and making it art simply by putting it in an art museum or an art gallery. 
And the idea here is that we're really pushing at the boundaries between art and life, taking art down off of its pedestal and making it enter into and disrupt our sort of everyday reality and our everyday way of looking at the world. These are ready-mades, the, the series of the new are ready-mades. They are vacuum cleaners that were mass manufactured that Coons took. Uh, very importantly, they had never been used before. They're, they're brand new, they're pristine. And so this idea of newness is really important here. Um, obviously the irony is, is that they were new when they were made um, and they were new when Coons turned them into works of art, but of course they're not new anymore. You know, they're three decades old um, and they look old. And so this idea that commodities um, will inevitably become obsolete, even though the reason we buy them is because they're new and they're sexy and, and they're exciting, but they will eventually become old and boring and, and useless um, is something that's built into the work. Another important reference point here, aside from the ready-made, is pop art. Um, which uh, in a nutshell uh, was somewhat indebted to the legacy of Duchamp and the idea of the ready-made, but instead of taking everyday objects and turning them into art, Pop takes everyday images and turns them into art. So in a way, it reflects on the fact that increasingly throughout the 20th century, the reality that we live in, the world that we inhabit, is a world not of objects, but of images. So um, they're Pop in the sense that, um, you know, they take an object from everyday life that is not um, a, a especially valued object, but is a mass manufactured commodity good, right? This is equivalent to Warhol's Campbell's soup cans, basically. Um, and finally, the other reference point here that has to be considered is minimalism. And these are the three main touch points for Kuhn's in terms of who he's thinking about um, in his early career, right? It's, it's Duchamp, it's Warhol, and it's also minimalism. And so minimalism was the language um, of abstraction that became very popular after pop. It's the sort of major movement to follow pop. Um, and minimalism um, basically is about using uh, minimal, or in other words, very basic, primary, regular geometric forms in order to create something that is art, but is neither painting nor sculpture. And so therefore, has more of an opportunity to really confront us and surprise us um, that it, it inhabits that's that old avant-garde idea of really inhabiting our everyday life our everyday realities the the paradigmatic form of minimalism is really going to be the cube you see people like donald judd and robert morris and tony smith using the shape of a cube over and over and over again um, and eventually um, the theory that emerges um, out of the writings of one of the persons to use the cube, uh, Robert Morris, is that what the cubes are trying to do is to really make you walk around them and, and experience their, the, the way that your perception of the cube actually changes in space. And this is something that I, I don't know is super apparent with the new series, with the vacuum cleaners, but will definitely become more apparent with the next series we're going to talk about, where Kunz's work do invite a kind of response um, that is very much embodied and sort of participatory in the sense that you have to walk around and that what you see as you walk around keeps changing. And in that way, the work invites you to keep walking around it. So the vacuum cleaners are minimalist in the sense that they're placed in these plexiglass cubes, which are sort of austere um, and, and rigid. Uh, but these cubes are lit on the bottom by fluorescent tubes. And this is a reference to another minimalist artist who worked with fluorescent tubes, a guy named Dan Flavin, whose work you might have seen. Um, so the way the fluorescent tubes are put into these cubes, though, is they're put on the bottom of the cube. So 
it's a direct reference to commodity display, right? It's the same way that you would see, you know, um, objects in a in a vitrine in a store. Why vacuums? Why not some other commercial product or commodity product? Again, Coons's biography comes into play. He talks about being a kid in the 1950s and remembering the Hoover vacuum cleaner salesman coming around um, door to door and trying to sell uh, vacuum cleaners to his mother. And he himself then um, started selling stuff door to door, although I'm not sure the extent of it. I feel like we all sort of did this. I remember as a kid, you know, I was selling gift wrapping you know, paper door to door as a fundraiser Girl for Scout band. Cookies. Right. So. Um, but anyway, he he participated in that. Perhaps it is, in some sense, a profoundly American middle class thing to do. Um, but he said about this experience of going door to door as a salesman that he enjoyed it. And he describes it as being a way of, quote, meeting people's needs. And here is when we where we first run into the sort of roadblock of Jeff Koons's personality, right? Because I think many of us might think of advertising not as something that meets people's needs, but as something that manufactures people's yeah. needs in order for the company to produce a product to be able to fill that need and generate profit. Describing advertising in this sort of innocent, naive um, way as, oh, it just it meets people's needs is a little bit questionable. All right, but to return to the work, um, it is autobiographical because it refers to his childhood, and yet you look at that and you wouldn't know that the work does seem very cold and impersonal. And Even this is just in the way that it's lit. It look, I mean, that, that yeah. fluorescent right lighting from underneath gives it a, a very odd sort of. I mean, the word that I always think of with his seeing his works in the flesh is just creepy. Yeah, it does give it a much. It's it's not this sort of gleaming shiny object it's it's really uninviting yeah and well it, it has um i mean first of all that light is very very cold and harsh it's mm -hmm. not a warm soft inviting light um but also i think it has a little bit to do with the valley of the uncanny why they're so creepy so that actually brings me into my next point which is that these are machines and yet there is something very anthropomorphic about them and coons talks about that explicitly um so why anthropomorphic? Well, um, especially the upright vacuum cleaners, they just sort of have a presence. And the way that they're lit, our attention is being drawn to them in a way that almost seems like, you know, uh, like a speaker on a dais or something. Um, and in fact, the lighting on it um, has reminded people of basically um, a, a kind of uh, religious experience. The works have a presence about them. And this presence is in fact kind of spiritual, right? Because of the glowing light, the white light. Um, and yet they are machines, right? So that's the valley of the uncanny, right? It's something that is too close to being a human, but not close enough, right? Something that's, it's that's what's creepy, right? So, you know, children's like Barbie dolls and stuff right. like that, right? Another paradox here, um, we talked about the fact that they're autobiographical, but also impersonal. We talked about the fact that they were once new, but are now obsolete. The fact that there are machines made for getting dirt, for collecting dirt, and yet will stay forever pristine. Um, so that's another thing here. Um, and then uh, finally, the, the sexiness of them is a strange paradox because they are simply... Um, uh, utilitarian commodities and yet they are charged with a kind of erotic power and again Coons is very deliberate that that's what they're supposed to do that's how you're supposed to respond to them he talks about them being machines quote-unquote for sucking and blowing um, and if you look at the way the hoses 
um, are in- installed, they they wrap around the canisters almost like an embrace. Um, so there is something sort of seductive about the curves of these vacuum cleaners that you probably don't see in everyday life, but when you put it into the context of an art gallery and you're thinking about things like line and form and and how shapes make us feel, you see that. That reminded me of this Jeff Daniels film that was shot in my hometown when I was in high school about it was it was um, touted as a film about dueling uh, vacuum cleaner salesmen. Um, it was only until after the film was released that I realized that they the one the one salesman basically won by convincing women to use the vacuum cleaners as self-gratification devices. <laughs> that was not something that was really explained in the newspaper articles uh, describing this film as it was being filmed in my hometown. So, yeah, that, that rung a bell. Speaking of autobiography. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, they remind me more of like The Brave Little Toaster. Which um, was quite a creepy movie. Which is a creepy movie because it's that uncanny valley of like yeah. inanimate objects that move and um, that sort of sort of look and act like humans but aren't. That um, scary dump. Yeah. You know, magnetic guy. Yeah. So it's, if you have no idea what we're talking about, that's your homework on, assignment. I think it's on Netflix streaming right now, actually. Okay. Brave Little Toaster. If you're of our generation, go relive your childhood. Yeah. Um, another thing it reminds me of is like the apple cube, mm. you know, and not that Kuhn's intended this reference when these works were made in 1980, but Apple is playing upon the same ideas here that Kuhn's is that the perfect glass cube um, with its association with with geometric perfection, with uh, clarity, with transparency, um, with truth, and then the light, which is also associated with truth, right, that the way that Apple uses the cube and the light is very similar to the way that Jeff Koons uses it, right? Which is to remind us that the way that we respond to consumer products is often with a kind of religious devotion um, or, you know, just think of the excitement that people have as they line up to, you know, get the iPhone 6 the same way that people would like line up to, you know, meet the Pope. Yeah. And speaking of anthropomorphism, you can think about how, you know, desktops when they go to sleep apple desktops they kind of they have the light that pulsates that looks like it's breathing Breathing. yeah yeah i don't think i could handle um (laughs) these vacuum cleaners if the lights under them were like breathing it's creepy enough um all right so in sum you can see that what jeff coons has put on the table in 1980 with this first um series of work to really enter his canon are the great themes of art, right? It's sex, it's death, the question of, you know, obsolescence. Um, it's money, right? These are about fetishizing products that you buy. And it's also religion. So this is what you sort of have to give to Jeff Koons is that on the one hand, his works will increasingly seem very approachable, um, you know, something that the children can appreciate even, um, very familiar. Uh, these works, not as much, um, but we can see that in these works and also in the later works as well, it's just harder to find, there, there are these great themes, the traditional themes of art. The Celebration series, which is one of his most famous series, was started in 1994. It was inaugurated when... Uh, Jeff Koons was invited to design a calendar, and this led to him thinking about the idea of marking milestones throughout the year, how we mark the passage of time. So, for example, um, by noting our birthdays, by celebrating our birthdays, and it's precisely at a birthday when one would expect to encounter a 
a, a clown or a magician making uh, balloon animals. And so this balloon animal um, or balloon dog, which is one of the works in the celebration series, is a, an explicit reference to the idea of, of birthdays as a kind of celebration. Now, the Balloon Dog series exists um, in five unique versions or colors, like most of the other works in the Celebration series. Um, they have appeared on the roof of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, um, by the Venice uh, Grand Canal, and also at Versailles. And apparently, thanks to Wikipedia, um, now I know that it was also um, featured in The Night at the Museum, that apparently the Balloon Dog is one of the works that comes to life. Yeah, I never saw that. Yeah, me neither. Um Somebody tell us if we absolutely should and we're missing out. Uh, Balloon Dog Orange, uh, dated 1994 to 2000, is probably the most well-known of the balloon dogs, simply because it set the world auction record for any living artist. In November 2013, Christie sold this particular balloon dog, Balloon Dog Orange, for $58.4 million. Um, Just to give you a sense of how uh, momentous this sale was, the previous record for an work sold at auction by a living artist was set in May that same year, just a few months prior, and that was for $37 million. So Balloon Dog Orange blows the record by $21 million. I mean, the record was only $37 million to begin with, right? I mean, so this is really incredible. What's this thing look like? We know how much it costs. Um, and for once, actually, the idea of how much the work costs actually does play into what the work means. Normally, it's not so important, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like the price is this hyperinflated price, um, the 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 sculpture is an inflated uh, balloon dog um, that has been inflated in scale. Um, so it's you know taller than you. It's roughly, I think, nine feet high. The way of manufacturing these balloons is often discussed as being a key part of the project, that it's not some simple ready-made kind of thing where he just took a balloon dog and passed it to some manufacturers and said, here, make this. Um, Really, the fabrication is very important here. Um, It was so difficult to find a company that could do this. Um, and, And the cost of making rolled steel curve so perfectly and and to do so without ever rippling or wrinkling or buckling in any way to have that perfectly smooth surface um that was such a hard thing to do that these works were so expensive that Kunz's dealers actually had to come together and start selling these works on spec um in order to be able to raise the money to make them so you actually had um collectors buying these works before they even existed in order to fund them so this is almost like a very um, a renaissance model of patronage almost mm-hmm. um, a sort of very old school idea um, and yet at the same time is also very 1980s Wall Street the fact that these works are so technically difficult to produce and require such advanced technology kind of foregrounds the issue of artistic labor we admire the labor that goes into this work um, almost as a kind of spectacle right we look at it and we admire the craft and we think, how did, how did they do this, right? I mean, it's technically very compelling, but I don't know that it necessarily leads you to think about how much money went into actually making it, right? As for the symbolism of the toy balloon, 
Um, as I mentioned before, it's um, about a kind of nostalgia for childhood. It's about fun memories. The colors are all very bright and happy colors. So this is sort of classic Coons, you know, picking up on elements of pop culture that are non-threatening, that are um, associated with good times. Um, you could say that perhaps there is a little bit of a dark side here. Um, a balloon animal is one that inevitably always gets popped or deflates. Um, birthday, it's hollow. It's hollow. It doesn't have any core, both sort of literally and also spiritually. Um, the work itself seems to have picked up on that idea. Uh, some people have pointed out that at the time that he was making these works, Coombs was um, lamenting the fact that the child he had had with... Um, the porn star um, had been abducted by his mother. She took him back to Italy, um, and Coons had to fight a very protracted and very expensive custody battle in order to get his son back, although he does now have exclusive custody. So, you know, thinking about children's birthday parties was for Coons at this point in his life not necessarily something that made him happy. Uh, that's the balloon itself. I think the, one of the most interesting things that happens to the balloon, aside from the fact that it is picked, is how it's blown up in scale. So this is one of his uh, trademark aesthetic moves is to, to increase the scale of what would otherwise be um, very humble, middle brow, maybe even low brow tchotchkes or kitsch. Um, and by blowing these banal things up and then spending literally millions of dollars to make them, he seems to be trying to elevate their importance or to increase their power um, to... Uh, make us look at them right uh the other very alluring they are very alluring and part of that is just the size yeah so um another thing that happens when you blow up these everyday objects is that they're a little surreal Mm -hmm. um you know you feel a little bit like alice in wonderland when you walk in and there's these crazy changes of scale that are happening um throughout the galleries around you um, and this, you know, brings us back to the fact that, as Sarah mentioned earlier, Salvador Dali was one of his early heroes that he actually went to go visit in New York City. Uh, another important thing to talk about with the form of this work is that just like the vacuums, they're sexy. The curves of the balloon are very sensual. The parts that make up the, you know, the legs or the snout can be read as as phallic, but on the other hand, also as feminine um so in this regard it kind of reminds us of a work we talked about on an earlier podcast uh kara walker's a subtlety so it's this object that just like kara walker's work is blown up in scale and is figurative but has this kind of sexiness in the form simply because it's blown up and big um but unlike kara walker's a subtlety this work is not about um, racial or gendered uh, criticism of American visual culture, and it also doesn't provide any sense of local history. These objects can basically just be dropped in wherever. Um, they don't attend to local politics or local culture, and that's actually one of the the criticisms of this work is that this is the work of global capitalism. This is a work that can be sort of imported or exported anywhere. It doesn't really matter. And on a practical level, that's great for Jeff Koons because it means that whether his collection lives in Abu Dhabi or Rio de Janeiro or Connecticut, you can just airdrop the balloon right in. Coons has said about the balloons that they are optimistic. And I think what he means by that is that they um, do sort of elevate or inflate our memories of these happy times um, and their bright and happy colors. But he also called them a Trojan horse. And 
I think that this is um, an interesting and somewhat sort of ambiguous statement for him to make. A Trojan horse is what, you know, the Greeks used to inject themselves behind the city walls of Troy. What ideas is is Coons injecting with his Trojan horse and 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 where to whom? Once again, um, it's hollow. You know, it, it's it, yeah, and and you know, is it even saying anything once it gets in the doors, right? So, I think on one hand, we could say potentially that he's disrupting the 1% by, you know, tricking them into buying an object that somehow offers ideas that are critical of a socioeconomic status quo. That would be the charitable reading. Um, On the other hand, you could say that he's disrupting these revered spaces of art. Remember, Balloon Dog has appeared at the Met and at Versailles and by the Grand Canal in Venice. And um, so you could say that he's disrupting these spaces of art with the values of the 1%. I should say of the tasteless 1%. So -hmm. this idea of, you know, big and shiny and dumb, um, basically. I will say anecdotally... um, it is pretty funny that Coons has been sued multiple times for ripping off other people's work. Um, you know, some of his tchotchkes, for example, are based on um, photographs, and he got sued by one of the photographers. Um, but for Balloon Dog, Coons actually sued a bookstore in San Francisco that was producing bookends in the shape of these balloon dogs, and um, he ended up abandoning his lawsuit. But it, it, it's complicated, you know, the idea of intellectual property and art, and that's possibly an, an issue for another podcast. Um, another thing I want to point out um, sort of anecdotally about this work is that it was the subject of a cross-promotion between the clothing store H&M and the retrospective. So H&M marketed a $50 handbag that had the balloon dog's image on the side in tandem with the Coons retrospective opening and H&M opening their new flagship store on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. So, you know, I guess, again, you could be charitable and say, oh, look, it's great. Jeff Coons licensed the use of this image and he's bringing his art to the masses, um, which he also did with the installation of um, a big topiary work outside Rockefeller Center at the same time as the retrospective opened. Um, but on the other hand, you know, as we just discussed the work, so much of what the, what the work means has to do with scale and also with the the facture of the surface, meaning the way that the surface steel is rolled. You see it in person and it really is incredible to look at and it's reflective and you see yourself and you marvel at how smooth it is. Both of these things, the scale and the interest in surface are lost in the tote bag reproduction. So what has the work become? It's a logo. It's a logo for Jeff Koons. It's not a work of art. So that's my opinion. But I'm standing by it. The last work I want to talk about is from his most recent series called Antiquity. And this also has uh, some reflective stainless steel in it. So that's a a thread that winds through these works. Um, Not that there's stainless steel in the first work, but this idea of the kind of um, technically perfect manufactured surface, whether it's the plexiglass or the vacuum cleaner itself, or the stainless steel. Um, He definitely is um, a perfectionist. It's how he's always referred to in the critical literature, that he's a perfectionist when it comes to the manufacturing of his works, even though he doesn't do it by hand. um, He very much thinks about issues like, you know, getting the the steel rolled just right. And I think when he's... Uh, he's very meticulous in... uh, For works like the Popeye series, where he's not actually producing 
the paintings, um, but he is producing the model um, and is very meticulous in that process before actually handing the prototype um, off to his studio assistants who actually produce it. Right. And just to be clear, I'm not objecting to the fact that he does hand his prototype off to studio assistants. Um, I think conceptual art taught us back in the 60s and 70s that art can be as much about the idea as the actual realization of the product. And in that sense, Jeff Koons is actually a very old school artist um, than that he is so obsessed with the actual object. Um, It's what the object says that bothers me. It's not the fact that he doesn't make it. But anyway, okay, so antiquity. Um, So uh, when you walk into the Whitney show, um, this is actually the first series of work that you'll see. It's in a small um, exhibition space just to the side of the elevators in the lobby that take you up to the main floors where the show was installed. Um, so the Whitney was sort of isolating this work. And if you follow the show chronologically down the levels of the museum, this is positioned as his most recent work, um, the direction that he's moving in. In the Antiquity series, he is using uh, found imagery or ready-made imagery, just like the pop artists, um, and just like he's done throughout his career, whether it's the Tchotchkes or the Popeye series that Sarah just mentioned, or the Hulk series. Um, but this time, instead of using... 20th century American pop culture, he's using the culture of classical antiquity. So he's going back to ancient sculptures like the Hercules, um, that's known as the Farnese Hercules, or the Apollo Belvedere, um, these really famous sculptures from ancient Rome after Greek models um, that influenced art very much in the Renaissance and afterwards. In a sense, it makes a lot of sense for Jeff Koons to make this move. If you're an artist and you want to convince people that what you're making is really art or that you belong in the textbooks of art history, easiest thing to do is to go back to the Greeks. Yeah. Right. To sort of prove that you are part of this continuous artistic heritage, mm-hmm. um, that you are the inheritor um, who is n- not ignoring, but rather receiving and then transcending or pushing beyond the the pinnacle of art from you know antiquity so um it makes a lot of sense for jeff coons in a way to do this now at his point in his career when he's thinking about his legacy it also makes a lot of sense because the the style of classical antiquity which is this intense realism that is tempered by an interest in elegance and balance and composition has long been associated with power and wealth if you wanted to be the artist for the 1%, it would make a lot of sense to go back to classical antiquity. Um, we do still associate classical forms with conservative forces in society. So even though we also think now of major contemporary collectors who are very wealthy, collecting very avant-garde, crazy, weird-looking stuff, um, there will always be, I think, this association in Western culture between the art of antiquity and, and money and class and power. So um, what he does to make these works is he's using uh, CT scans and other digital imaging techniques and technologies, some of which were actually either invented or improved specifically for his use at great cost um, to scan the source images. And then he's recreating them um, in... Uh, different materials so um, I mean I'm sure what he's scanning are in fact recreations I don't know that he's actually like scanned yeah I don't the, know yeah I don't, I don't I don't think he's actually scanning like the Farnese Hercules which brings in an interesting question about you know 
mediation and how he's copying a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, and in fact, this concept of copying is really interesting when you consider the fact that these works are made in plaster, um, some of them. And the idea of copying a work from antiquity and making it is on the one hand a very sort of conceptual 20th century move, like think of appropriation art where people, you know, take other artists' work and present it as their own. That happened in the 1980s. Richard Prince. Like Richard Prince, for example, if you know anything about him. But it's also super classical because this is precisely how antique sculptures got to be so famous in Europe and so influential. I mean, not every city had a sculpture from the ancient world, but even smaller towns could have plaster casts of these more famous sculptures that were in places like Rome. It's also important just in the lineage of of artistic education because, you know, in, in the major academies in modern Europe, uh, that was one of the, the early things that students would study from were plaster casts from from uh, from the masterpieces of, of antique sculpture. Again, as with the vacuum cleaner works and as with um, the celebration series with Balloon Dog, I think it's significant to think about which particular objects it is that Kuhn's is selecting for a refabrication um, or for presentation. So the Farnese Hercules, if we want to talk about this example in particular, is a, a very famous example of an ancient sculpture of Hercules, who is obviously the hero um, of the ancient world. He's half mortal, half divine, uh, the son of Zeus. And uh, he completes a series of labors um, that uh, basically you know, allowed him to prove his mettle. Um, and He's uh, an incredibly muscular, brawny figure. And so this figure of Hercules um, from the ancient world uh, is seen as an example of, of the, the apex of male beauty, basically. Um, you know, he's like the perfect bodybuilder type. This idea of male beauty that Kunz is picking up on here, which is symbolized by the Farnese Hercules, is, um, again, like the idea of making a plaster cast, both... Um, very sort of um, fresh. Um, I won't say new because it's not a new model of male beauty, but it's current, right? I mean, think about Jeff Koons photographed naked in a gym working out, right? So this idea of masculine, muscular male beauty is very current still, but also old fashioned, right? I mean, this is a model that is 2000 years old. Another commonality that this work has with um, both vacuum cleaners and balloon dogs is the sex uh, you know, he is naked um, and he is there for us to look at and to appreciate. So um, here we see Coons again meditating upon the relationship between our libido and objects. And whereas before those objects were mass manufactured ones, here he's actually thinking about our libidinal relationship with objects of art. Um, Again, as with the balloon dog, scale is really important. Um, the work is large. You have to look up to Hercules. Um, there's nothing subtle about it. And that's very typical Jeff Koons, right? Sort of hits you over the head. Um, but to me, what makes this interesting, aside from you know, all the stuff I just mentioned, I think what really makes it interesting is the fact that it's not just Hercules. Koons has added a blue round mirrored orb um, that is balanced on Hercules's right shoulder. And this orb appears in uh, 
sculptures throughout the antiquity series. Um, and Kuhns has said that it, he was inspired by quote unquote gazing balls. And I didn't know about this, but I thought like it was a reference to like labyrinth or something. Um, but uh, apparently these mirrored balls um, are put on lawns in suburban and rural areas, um, especially where Coons grew up in Pennsylvania. And Coons describes them as being like a gift to strangers because there's just these objects of visual fascination that you walk past them or drive past them and you see the world reflected. And um, because they're circular, obviously they distort the world around them. So that's sort of interesting and fun to look at. It's kind of like a hall of mirrors phenomenon. And in fact, if any of you have been to Chicago and seen The Bean, the bean um, by Anish Kapoor, it's that kind of effect, I think. And um, it's just a, a fun gift to the people, right? So um, again, the work connects to Kuhn's own personal history, um, but also transcends that because using this blue ball in dialogue with the sculpture of Hercules actually creates this wonderful um, sort of study in contrast. And so I think of it really, the way that I responded to it was that it was an essay on composition. Um, and this has long been considered, uh, you know, composition has long been considered the... Um, sort of ultimate uh, process of Western art. So one American critic um, derisively referred to composition as, quote, jockeying the parts around. And it's about achieving a kind of balance between elements of form. And that that's what Western art really is after. So what elements do we see being balanced here? Well, the heaviness of the figure versus the sort of imagined lightness of that orb, which is reflective and seems to float on his shoulder. Um, the rectangularity of the body versus the circularity of the orb, um, the imagined texture of Hercules himself, that flesh of all those muscles versus this, this cold steel um, of the orb, the colorlessness of the statue. Um, I mean, it's literally white, but white is a kind of non-color, um, supposedly in Western art, um, versus the uh, intensely pigmented blue orb, which just has this this richness to it it's it's a not a subtle color at all it's it's metallic it's intense it's deep um the articulated surface of the figure of hercules meaning there's all of these little ins and outs and ups and downs and bumps and ridges as you follow all the different muscles and the bends in the anatomy versus the perfect platonic smoothness of this orb um so yeah, in, in basically in every formal way, color, line, shape, texture, the blue orb is the antithesis of the figure of Hercules. And yet the blue orb is actually placed in one final act of composition on the shoulder of Hercules, um, on his right shoulder, as a kind of anchor for a diagonal that goes across the body of Hercules and down to the bend in his left knee. So in the same way as Sarah was mentioning that plaster casts um, would be used to teach artists about how to make a beautiful work of art, how to compose a sculpture. Uh, I think maybe this Kuhn's work is actually doing something kind of similar if we're open to it and really look at it. And there's the rub really with, with this work is that if you look at it, you can get something out of it because there is a lot of thought and concern that's put into it clearly. Um, but if you're not really looking for that, then all you see merely is a reflection of yourself, right? Sometimes literally in all of these stainless steel surfaces. And 
in that sense, these works are seen as not offering any kind of um, of criticism because they don't push you as a viewer to, to look deeply and to think closely that they make it very easy for you as a viewer to walk towards the work with all of your baggage, who you are, and then to walk away unchanged, except maybe just feeling better about yourself. And in fact, Coons has said that that's what he thinks art should do, that it should make people feel better about themselves. And this runs very contrary to um, the opinion that um, I think is shared by a lot of art critics and art historians, which is that art isn't just about making yourself feel better about yourself. It can be about that sometimes, sure. But that it can also serve this very important role in society of of pushing us and making us ask questions. I mean, think about more broadly what the liberal arts are supposed to do or what the humanities are supposed to do. Um, and it goes against the whole avant-garde project. Obviously, yeah. 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 This is really the, um, the, the problem that we have uh, a lot of people speaking for a lot of people, I guess, um, including myself, uh, with Jeff Koons, is that while the work definitely has potential, um, the way that Koons positions his work is problematic. And he's often compared in the sense to Warhol. Um, Warhol, who was so blank and always seemed to speak in ironies, to say one thing but mean another, that you could read him two ways. Um, the difference is that Koons is sincere, that it it's very difficult to to think that Coons is joking or kidding or being ironic. Um, he has this very sort of calm, self-assured manner about him. Um, and it's it's hard to describe. It's really um, it's it's enticing in a way, but then when you start to dissect and think that there might be more than what's superficially there, it, it's hard to actually imagine that there is. Yeah, I mean, he he has the attitude sort of like of a, a motivational speaker or a therapist or um, a, a, a salesman, you know, or a cult leader, frankly. <laughs> I mean, he speaks in these sort of even tones and he's always very assured. And, you know, as one critic pointed out, like he never doubts, like, you know, he doesn't seem to have any anxiety at all about what he's doing or any concerns or, you know, um, he, he just does his thing and he sells it. And... I don't know, there's something like, you know, creepy about that. It's pretty unsettling. And, you know, in terms of how the work can be received, you know, Warhol introduced transformations when he borrowed images from popular culture that could be seen as somehow criticizing the source material, not just celebrating it. So, for example, think about Marilyn Monroe. He takes her image yeah, he's celebrating it by repeating it over and over again and and turning it into high art. But also, if you actually pay attention and look at the forms, like the colors are really disconcerting. I mean, she looks like an embalmed zombie. I mean, she looks like a woman trapped. I mean, it's... it's And as the image is repeated, it becomes more degraded and yeah I mean there's something sort of sinister about that you know that she's like being her existence is being like rubbed out you know by the imagery that circulates so Warhol introduces these transformations that open up a kind of space for criticism Um, whereas with Coons he, he also introduces transformations but his transformations do seem to be more of um more well celebratory right going back to the series celebration i mean it seems like he only ever blows things up and makes them bigger and bigger better and shinier and sexier and 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 easier and it is possible to push the work but you have to push a lot harder than i you do with warhol i think yeah in some 
the work itself is compelling. And I think that that is what the New York retrospective has taught us, people who look at art professionally, that there is something there to see maybe. Um, but it remains problematic that Kuhn says things like, you know, um, he just wants you to be happy and he wants you to feel that your taste is 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 great and that you're great as you are and you don't need to change. And um, yeah, and that that makes us sort of hesitate, I think, to, to offer him a full endorsement. Um, and I think just to, to bring it all home, uh, I've seen this expression in the criticism about Kuhn's that Kuhn's is the artist we deserve. And in that sense, um, I think that that's a great way to explain Kuhn's importance, mm-hmm. um, that he is exactly the kind of superficially meaningful or um, compelling but empty or ambiguously good (laughs) artist for our times, for the world that we live in. Uh, As always, you can visit our website, arthistory.today, to see images that we've mentioned uh, and for links to uh, stories that we may have discussed. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. ¶¶